Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel and he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain. I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For John 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell? I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face, I mean just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face, probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem, as he would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mott. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. Amen. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight as we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible, lays on the pulpit it's a reminder he used to be laying down lines of cocaine he used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle he used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife but praise the Lord God created him and ordained him to walk in good works it's a reminder Christian I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. Amen. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. Forgiving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two. By surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me, and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose.
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. I love to be with God's people, and boy, tonight is no exception to that. It's wonderful to be here. Choir, thank you for singing, and I appreciate that, and then everybody who participated. Uh, great job, Brother Colton, leading the singing and getting us going on that. I love to be in God's house, and I'm very thankful. I had the joy. My dad got saved when he was um, 11 years old. Uh, he, his mom was an alcoholic. Family was dysfunctional. Challenges in every way. Crystal balls and carrot cards and things of that nature. And a Sunday school teacher in a local church was given a room by his pastor and said, Would you 
would you teach the junior age boys? And he wasn't content to have one or two kids. He went out every Saturday and sometimes the nights and tried to find kids to come and be in his class. And he, my dad, my uncle told me, just a little small fella compared to my uncle. He said, just a little man, John, but that guy would get us to go in there and he would teach us the Bible. And of course, your dad and I, we just tried to stay away from mom on the weekends because it was so difficult to be there when mama was drunk. And so he gave us a chance to be there, taught us the Bible, and gave us a cookie and a, a cup of, of Kool-Aid, and, and we went off to big church. One day, he tapped your dad on the shoulder and said, Richard, could you stay after class? He put a folding chair in the corner. That's where the teacher sat. He turned another folding chair facing him, and he said, Richard, sit here. And he began to take a Bible and show your daddy how to be saved. And he said, that day was the best day of your dad's life. He always, he came into big church about 20 minutes later, said, Douglas, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I know for sure I'm saved now. I'm going to heaven. Douglas, you're going to hell. You're not saved yet, you know. And he was giving it to him. He said, Richard, we're talking, just listen in church here, man. You know? And all week he was so excited. He went home and told mom he was saved. And mama was drunk. And she said, no, you can't be saved. The Bible says you have to be 12 to be saved. And you're still 11. And... Uh, <clears throat> He said, no, Mama, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And that week, that week, all week long, your, your dad was so excited. I told, I told him, I said, listen, tell the teacher to tap me on the shoulder today. I want to sit in that chair. And the next week he said, I got saved. The teacher showed me how to be saved. And, of course, what a blessing to know that a local church did its job. Everybody gets saved. There has to be three factors. There has to be the Word of God because faith cometh by hearing. There has to be the Spirit of God because He has to bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He's the one I can't bring anyone conviction. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, but I'm glad He does His job. And then the third factor is a local church has to do its job. A local church needs to protect and to propagate the truth. And, uh, boy, the way you keep the truth and protect the truth is by keep getting it out. <laughs> You ever hear something real funny? You heard a joke. You say, oh, man, when I go home, I'm going to tell my family about this joke. And you get home and you can't remember the joke? <laughs> that ever happened to you or is it just me that happens to you? Oh, it's frustrating. You're like, oh, it was so funny. I laughed. Oh, what was it? You know how you can remember a joke? Tell a joke. <laughs> you tell it, you remember it. You know how you keep the truth? You tell the truth. Amen. You keep getting the gospel out and you'll keep that. So many churches. And the Bible says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. truth. Yeah, there's a lot of churches. They have buildings, they have parking lots, they have cars, they have pastors, have programs. They just don't have the truth. Couldn't find the truth there with a flashlight. And you went to ask the pastor how to get to heaven married that they wouldn't know. He or she wouldn't be able to tell you. Wouldn't be able to tell you how to get to heaven from there because they've lost the truth. And boy, I'm so glad for local churches and uh, each of our pastors that are here, you represent. Uh, a local church and the vision. You're the captain of world evangelism. And I am so glad that you are doing what God's called you to do. There's just two positions open in Christianity. One is to be the pastor of your church. The other one is to help your pastor pastor that church. And that's if your job is to pastor, then do the best job you can. If your job is to, is to help your pastor, then decide, you know what, I want to be a dedicated helper. And I'm going to help my pastor Pastor the church God's given to pastor and do the very best you can do in any arena and play your role. And it's wonderful. Labors together with God. I've been thinking about this theme since uh, 
Pastor Rice sent me an email and told me this is what they're going to be doing, and, and I'm excited about this. He's hoping to baptize son, someone Sunday morning and break right through that, laboring together, just break through that and uh, be excited about that. 149 days without an accident, and the last accident was Brother Rice. He had an accident, and so this is going great right here. And so you guys all be careful going down the steps tonight. We don't want to make sure you're here for the safety meeting tomorrow morning at 8.30, all right? And uh, we'll, I don't know, we might, we might just eat, eat too many donuts and drink too, many too much coffee. We might have an accident after that. But uh, it's a joy to be with you. My wife and I are so thrilled to know what God is doing north of our border. But we're grateful for what God is doing south of your border, too. And, and I'm glad that we have a time. And it's a great time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, we can find all kinds of problems. But nothing happened in politics keeps me from telling someone else about Jesus Christ. Nothing happened in the world or attacks are going to keep you from going across the street and talking to someone about Christ or giving out a gospel track, as Pastor said just a moment ago. I'm so glad he said that. You know who gives out gospel tracks? People that have them. <laughs> if you don't have them, you're not going to give them out. I, I gave one today to a guy named Jason. I said, Jason, let me tell you, this tells you about Jesus. He said, Pastor, I'm from India, and I just got baptized a few weeks ago. He goes, I was Hindu, but now I'm, I'm a Christian. I just became a Christian. I said, oh, that's great. We're going to talk more about that in my stay there at the hotel, but I'm looking forward to that. You know, it tracks what they do. It tracks, determines someone's curiosity. You know, when you give someone a gospel track and they tear it up and throw it in the ground, you can take away that they're not really interested right now, right? You can say, oh, they're not real curious right now. That's what happens. They determine someone's curiosity. If they hand it back to you or lie to want it or whatever, you just know well, that they're not ready right now. They need a little more sunshine of God's love. They need a little more moisture from God's grace and His heavens to, to, to land on their heart. They're just not interested right now. So when you give a track, you can determine someone's interest. Now, if they take it and start looking at it uh, and start looking at that and say, you know, I've been looking for a church. Okay, now you know there's some interest there. Now you know you can, and they open up conversation with people. You can begin to talk with conversation. And then another thing I love a gospel track I love is they go places that you're not going to go. They'll end up in junk drawers and, and in people's pockets. I have a sweet little lady. She's a, a missionary's wife in Belarus. And her daddy was drunk on the, on, on the platform of a uh, train station. And somehow or another, someone gave him a track, and he took it. He put it in his pocket. He stumbled on home, and his wife pulled his clothes off and took his jacket off, and he passed out. And she looked at his jacket, and she found a track. And she had it set up into the wee hours of the morning and began to read that track. And by herself, she accepted the Lord as her Savior. Later that next week, she led her daughter through that track, and that little girl at 13 years old accepted the Lord. And now she's a pastor's wife in Belarus because of a gospel track. I remember one day watching a man kind of come into the church a little bit late, and he was over here on my right. And I saw him come in. I was very interested, but I preached the message and shook his hand. And he said, uh, I, I said, uh, I said, what brings you? He goes, oh, you wouldn't believe it. He goes, uh, Someone gave me a paper, and, um, and, but it's been a long time. And I said, I said, well, listen, can I talk to you about it? He goes, no, no, can, can you come to my house? His name was Andy, and then his wife's name was T, and I went to Andy and T's house, and we went and talked to them. And 
went through the gospel track, got, went through the gospel with them, and they both accepted Jesus Christ. He said, you know what happened? I was, um, he said, about, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was at a funeral of a family member, and a lady walked up to me, and she told me a track, and I have twin daughters. He said, you need to get those girls in church. You need to take them. Because by that time, I had a good job. I was doing good. I didn't have an interest in church. He said, I took the track, and I don't know how, but this over the last few weeks, I've been going through a hard time. He goes, that job I had, I got to have to get another job, and it doesn't pay as well. So I'm going through some problems with my wife, and the kids are struggling. I'm just not doing good. And Sunday afternoon, I was cleaning out a junk drawer, and I found that paper. I looked on there and said, you know, I can make it. It's only 4.30 now. I can be at that church the time that it starts. I just drove to the church tonight. And that's what God did to bring him to Jesus Christ, a gospel track. You know, you never can know what might happen with that. And I'm glad Pastor brought that to our attention this evening. And I love, love being with you. And I'm really glad to share a few moments. I know we didn't get in here to get out, but I don't want to be a long time. I heard about one guy. He said, I got so much to say in the message, I don't know where to start. A little kid in the back says, start somewhere toward the end. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to get started here shortly here in just a second. And, uh, but I am so glad to be with you. And I'll tell you a little bit more about our story maybe tomorrow. But I uh, had the joy to be raised in a Christian home. And my dad met my beautiful mom, Janelle, and they were married. And my dad's lived with Jesus for 28 years. But um, my mother had a great uh, background. Her, her dad was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. And, and one of his grand, her grandparents were Christians. And, but um, they met each other, and God gave them a love relationship. They had six children. My name is John. I'm their oldest son. They, I have three brothers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, we're all pastors of a church. We pastor a church in Indiana and Illinois, Texas, and Tennessee. And then we have two sisters, Acts and Romans. I'm just joking, not really. Uh, their names are Jan and Mary. But, but uh, my sister is a missionary in a, in a Muslim country of Adjur Bashan. And my other sister has taught in a Christian school for years. And so thankful for churches like this one. And uh, my dad had happy feet, so he didn't stay in one place very long. and moved around a lot. And, um, and, but we always had good men of God. Sometimes the church buildings were a little large, like this one was. Sometimes they were smaller. Sometimes the pastor was older. Sometimes he was younger. Sometimes he preached really long. Sometimes he preached really short. I like those short, short uh, messages. They had different, different styles and different backgrounds. Some went to Bible institutes, and some got master's degrees from college. One thing I just remember about my pastors, they all loved the Lord. And they did the best they could do, and they preached the Word of God, and they opened up camps and took us to camps and BBSs, and, and they fixed the buildings, and they put fuels in vans and buses and picked up people and took us to nursing homes, like Pastor Arbo was telling about just a few moments. What a great testimony that is. And it just did the right things the right way for the right reasons. And, boy, I'm so blessed by that. I got to watch that. I never thought I'd ever be a pastor. I was a school teacher for 11 years, and I had managed to preach seven times in my 11 years after I finished Bible college until I, until I became a pastor. And uh, three of those times, I was so nervous, I got sick and threw up, and it was miserable. And the other four times, the audience got sick and threw up, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. But I was grading my high school English papers, and, and on April the 18th in 2000, and a phone rang. I picked it up, and 
It was a deacon of a church, and they had not had a pastor what would be 13 months without a pastor. And uh, they said, really, everything, everyone is here is here because they want to be here. Everybody else has kind of left and wonder if you would be willing to come and be our pastor. And I said, well, you know, I'll pray for you, but I don't think I could be your pastor, you know. I could think about a couple people that might help you. And he goes, well, we don't want your recommendations. We want you to consider being our pastor. And that changed my life. And for these last 24 years now, almost, I've had the joy to partner with my wife and God's people and uh, in the work of the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not always the devil. The devil's strategies have not changed to attack the shepherd so he can scatter the sheep. They're always banging away. Every pastor has a bullseye on him. Every missionary has a bullseye on him that the devil's trying to get him to sit still for a second so he can let go his arrows of doubt and hurt and difficulties. That's why you want to be a blessing to your pastor and uh, be an encouragement to them. Uh, pastors struggle. It's not easy sometimes. I'm not seeking for any sympathy. I'm just telling you. Uh, they're just, you just got to put your pants on the same way everybody else does. You're just a human being. You have a different position. But uh, pastors oftentimes, they struggle with inadequacies. They don't feel like they're worthy to do it, and they're not doing a good job. And if they were doing a better job, more things would happen. They, they get bad thoughts that come to their mind that, and, and there's always bullies and critics, somebody in the congregation and somebody on the Internet, someone who watches the, the live stream just wants to give them an email or call them or text them and say that wasn't right or you need to study your Bible more or whatever. Just always have an opinion about something. Financial pressures, whatever financial pressures a person would have, they have a, more so in the ministry because God has designed money to be in the middle of things. And it's just... It's challenging. It's difficult. Uh, people, you know, when they call your pastor, they, you know, no one calls, you know, call nurse, call doctor, call policeman. But they'll say, call pastor. <laughs> you know, someone dies, call pastor. Have a baby, call pastor. You know, want to get married, call pastor. Can't pay your rent, call pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Having financial problems, call pastor. Marriage problems, call pastor. And you know, that's a wonderful role in the life of believers. At the same time, there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. A lot of challenges. And I, uh, I thank God for the men of God that are here. And I thank you for coming. And I'm thankful for this church, Cornerstone Baptist Church. Thank you for hosting the meeting and, and expending. Already you've been taking offerings over and over and praying for the meeting. And... Uh, I know a little bit about hosting a conference, and it's just not done on spare time and pocket change. And it, many of you who paid and taken time off work to come and be here and spend a couple days with us, thank you for coming. And uh, your presence and your participation are really big. Uh, we were going to have this meeting whether you came or not. <laughs> but because you came, it's a lot better. And your presence encourages me, it encourages my wife, it encourages Pastor and Mrs. Rice, and actually everybody around you. It's just a blessing that you would take the time and effort and energy to come. We're glad to be with you. Looking forward to sharing time together as we talk about laboring together. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Of course, the theme of the conference is laboring together, and that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Bible tells us 
Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Uh, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. By the way, God's looking for faithfulness, and he rewards faithfulness. Um, it, and really, faithfulness is the key to fruitfulness. And we want to be fruitful, but the truth of the matter is, God's looking at faith. He doesn't say, well done, now good and fruitful servant. Now, he wants us to be fruitful, but uh, we don't know all that's going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, another time, maybe, but... Uh, one thing the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us that, that um, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. See, what's the Lord going to do when he comes? He's going to pull back the curtain of the evil works of darkness. What was really going in the satanic world against what, was going, what, 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 what we're trying to accomplish. And then he'll pull back another curtain, and that is the motives of the heart. What was really going on in, in here? Not only in your heart, but the heart of your adversaries, the heart of the people. And then shall every man have praise of God. And boy, friend, that's what we want to do. We want to, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of our eternity with him if we know him. We certainly would like to be faithful to him while we have a chance. And this is the parentheses of time. If you're going to do your giving, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Okay? Uh, listen, if there's no soul winning in heaven. There's no gospel tracts in heaven. There's no need for it. There's not going to be a missions conference in heaven. There's not going to be a, an offering taken in heaven for a building someplace. No, if you're going to do that, you've got to do that now. If you're going to witness, you might as well witness now. If you're going to give, let's give today. Let's find what we can do today and, because uh, Jesus is going to come. And if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we're going to see him. And he says, it's the point of every man wants to die. And after that, it's the evaluation. And we'll give an account of the deeds done while in our body, while we're still breathing, what we did with our time and our talents, our, our training, our trials, our, our tribe, our, 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 uh, our teaching. Whatever happened to us, do you, I don't have to give an account for you. You don't have to give an account for me. But to whom much is given, <laughs> much is required. And may the Lord help us to be faithful about that. And he said, we're, but we're laborers together with God. I think sometimes every once in a while we get in a little thought that we think, oh, man, I want to do great things for God. I'm not in that group. I want to do great things for, with him. <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to press him. I can't do that. But I like going where he's going. Years ago, we have nine children. All of them are girls except for seven. And uh, we have all those kids. And, but when those kids were little, my wife, we'd get, uh, every few years, we'd get some nice carpet. And she'd say, John, let's take our shoes off at the door and, and put all the shoes there. And boys, so that was what we do. We would do that, and our kids did the same thing. So I'd come in and, and get my, uh, my shoes off and put them there. But whenever it was time to get my shoes on, you know, I'd, just, I'd, start, I'd sit down in the chair by the door and start putting my shoes on. Inevitably, one of the little kids would come up to me, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. i say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're scurrying around trying to find their shoes. And then they get them together, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, I go, I go. I said, where am I going? I don't know. You know, they didn't know where I was going. They just wanted to go where I was going. You know why they want to go where I'm going? Because I have money, and they're broke. <laughs> I can drive a car. They can't drive a car. 
I like to stop at Tim Hortons. <laughs> I like to stop at a, at a convenience store. I like to get a snack every now and then. So they know if they go with Dad, he's got control, he's got money, and he likes snacks. You know, the truth of the matter is, when God puts his shoes on, you need to get your shoes together too. And say, Lord, I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you want me to be done. And that's important. Boy, that's important for all of us. Tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, laboring together through trials. Difficult times are, are just everyone has them. I have them and you have them. Maybe some of you say, Pastor, I, I'm not going to need this message. I'm doing good right now. Well, bless your heart. That's what they say in the South. If, they, if you don't really like someone, you just say, bless your heart. No, no. no, I'm just teasing. But you know, the truth of the matter is maybe you came here and said, Pastor, I, I'm doing great. I'm happy for you. Keep breathing. Because you're going to probably have some difficult times. You know, the Bible's all about people who had some difficult times. Uh, if you won't study, God tells the good and the bad and the ugly. He tells the good days of David. He tells some bad days of David. He says the good days of, of Saul when he was humble and his side. He talked about we're chasing donkeys. Then he talked about a time where he became presumptuous. He talks about Peter preaching at Pentecost, but he doesn't leave out that Peter cursed and denied the Lord. He tells the good and the bad. He tells about Paul and his missionary journeys and tells Paul and his big spat with, with uh, Barnabas. He kind of tells the good and the bad. Trials are reality. You can't listen to the Apostle Paul without reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and he goes through the litany of different things that he had gone through. Telling you what, when I look at that life, every once in a while someone will say, boy, you rode an airplane four hours with you big, tall, lanky guy and probably had to eat your knees. I always think about that. Uh, it's not so bad compared to the Apostle Paul's shipwrecks. I think I'll just take an airplane ride for three hours. It's not that big of a deal. But boy, he went through some difficult times. And Apostle Paul tells a little bit of a strategy that he goes through when he's laboring together with the Lord through some difficult times. We'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow with the pastors and the men laboring together through distractions and frustrations and attacks and difficulties. It, it comes. What did the Apostle Paul say? Well, if you would please look at 2 Corinthians chapter number uh, 4, and let's read this if we can. If you're comfortable, uh, I want to make you uncomfortable, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand one more time if we can, please. You heard what the pastor's job is to do, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and so let's look at this real quickly if we can. Verse number 8. Uh, verse 7. How about reading verse 7 with me? Everyone ready? Together. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power might be of God. Verse 8 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered into death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, 
the life in you. Would you read verse 13, please? We, having the same spirit of faith, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. Redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Verse 17 and 18, let's read it together. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege to be an extension of Pastor Rice uh, at this congregation tonight. And Lord, thank you for everybody who's here and then those who will come tomorrow after their midweek service is over. God, would you please work in our hearts? I know I'm nothing. I know you're everything. I know that you do not need me, but once again, I need you, and I pray you please help me. Thank you for the sweet friends who are here. Help me to say what I need to say fairly rapidly tonight, Lord. It's a long day. Many have driven a long time. But I pray you administer on the inside while I try to share, share a few thoughts on the outside. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is spending the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 talking about the wonderful privilege of getting people the gospel of Christ. All things are that because we have been given the, the gospel message in earthen vessels. Uh, it's, we're the vessel and the gospel is in us through the Holy Spirit of God and we're supposed to get it out to other people. But he goes into a little bit of a testimony. He said, look, we are troubled on every side. He said, I just feel like trouble is meeting me on every front. When I go over here, trouble is here. When I back up, trouble says I'm here. When I step forward, trouble. When I move over, there he is again. I'm troubled on every side. Have you ever had a day like that where it feels like the trouble just is all around you? Trouble's every place. The birds singing out your windows, a vulture. <laughs> it's not a good day. Difficult things. You, you, you're thinking to yourself, you can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. How much opposition I'm getting, how many difficulties I'm having. Well, Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I have a day like that. Your mama told you you'd have days like that. And this is one of those days. It's difficult. He said, we're troubling every side. But the Bible says, but we're not stressed out. We're not distressed. He said, I'm perplexed. He goes, I got more questions than answers. I'm scratching my head so much. I, I don't understand why is this happening. I'm perplexed. But I'm not in despair. He goes on to the next verse, I think verse number 9. Look at it, if you would please. He says, we're, verse 9, persecuted, but I haven't been forsaken. God's still with me. He says, I'm cast down, but I, I'm not destroyed. You know, whenever you have difficult trials of your life, and everybody has them, teenagers have them, single adults have them, married adults have them, senior saints have them, 
Pastors have them. Pastors' wives have them. Hey, nobody's exempt from problems. But someone said if all of our problems were hung out on the line, at the end of the day, you'd pick your problems and I'd pick mine. But we all have them. If we knew everybody's heartache in this room, if everybody just said, like, if just the people in the choir, and these are precious people, but if each of them just said, you know, one of the worst things ever happened to me, if each of them gave a testimony, we'd probably start crying and, and, and disbelief that how could they sing in the choir and have that happen to them if they revealed some of the deepest hurts. But Apostle Paul says, man, we're, we were, this, it's not a walk in the park what we're going through. He said, but I've learned a few things that I'm going to share with you. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He gives some strategies of what to do when you don't know what to do. What to, what to, what to do to, to work through the trials of life and labor together with God even though you got some pressure. Even though you've got trouble on every side and lots of more questions and answers and you're going through uh, times of persecution, you, you haven't been forsaken. Or even fallen down, but you're not destroyed. What do you do in times like that? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul did. Let's just see what he did. Number one, the Bible tells us that he believed God and he told him, I believe you. He believed God and he verbalized his faith in God. Look, if you will, please. He quoted Psalms 116 in verse number 13. Would you look at it? We having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I what? We also believe, and therefore speak. You know, one of the first things you can do when you have difficult times or trials that come to your life and my, my life, one of the things we need to do and make a shortcut to it is to say, God, I trust you. Amen. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Uh, James said like this, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. I don't know about you, but trials and different kind of trials and joy don't go in the same sentence with me. When I have a problem, I do not want to work through my problem. I want to transition out of my problem. <laughs> Yesterday. But God wants to oftentimes transform me through my problem. And give me trust in Him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. The first thing that, that Paul said, one of the first things he does, number one, he says, you know what? I believe God and I verbalize my faith in him. I've, I've spoken. You know, that's, that's what happens when you get saved. I was witnessing to a lady last week, Katie, and I got to share the gospel with Katie. And Katie, at the end, I said, Katie, if Jesus is willing to accept your sin, would you be willing to accept his sacrifice? Because I've been waiting to do that, okay. I said, okay, do you believe you're a sinner and you can't save yourself? Oh, yes. Do you believe that sinners deserve hell to be separated from God forever? She said, I know. Do you believe that only Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection could forgive your sin if you would come and accept him as your Savior? If he will take your sin, will you take his son, Jesus Christ? She says, yes, I am. I said, you know, the, the Bible says, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Katie, and with the mouth. Confession is made. You know, that's how I got saved. When I got saved, someone told me, and they said, do you believe that, John? I said, yeah. He said, now would you ask the Lord to save you? For whosoever shall. Oh. 
You know, that's how we got saved. If you're here today, you're not sure if you died, you go to heaven, please don't pass go. <laughs> don't collect $200. Don't, don't do anything. Don't leave. Don't get in your car without. Say, well, my, well, my mama thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter if your mama thinks you're saved. Well, my pastor thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter that. Either you and God know that. If you don't know for sure you're saved, don't gamble. The greatest mistake in the world is to go to hell over a mistake. Make sure you know. Well, I'm not sure I remember when I got saved. That's because you weren't there, okay? You need, to, you need to have a time and a place when you get that settled. When you exchange your sin for God's Son. And when you do that, you believe in your heart and you confess with your... But after we're saved, it doesn't stop with that. After we're saved... The just shall live by faith. And faith needs to be verbalized. When you have a difficult time and trouble backs you into a corner, maybe that's when you need to say, God, I trust you. I trust you. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth to all men and upbraideth not, and it shall be. But let him ask in Faith, nothing, asking, faith. You see the verbal and the faith of the heart and the verbally asking God. Listen, when you go through difficult times, that's the time you might want to kneel on your knees and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand. i got more questions than answers. I've got, I've got trouble on every side. I've got persecution. I've got frustrations. I can't. I just feel like I'm going to blow up. That's when we need to say, God, I trust you. Believe and verbalize your faith. That's what Apostle Paul said he did. Number two, he made his focus Jesus. Did you see Jesus pop up on numbers of those pages? Looking unto Jesus. He authored and finished the race. And, and, and make your focus upon the Lord. I am so glad that, that I have Jesus. I'm glad that Jesus has me. I'm glad that in all, when it's all said and done, it's going to be Jesus and me for all eternity. So whatever problem I have today, if it is trouble on every side, I, I have Christ in my heart. The great song, What though wars may come with marching feet and beat of the drum, for I have Christ in my heart. What though nations rage as we approach the end of the age, for I have Christ in my heart. God is still on the throne, almighty God is he, and he cares for his own throughout eternity. So let come what may, whatever it is, I only say that I have Christ in my heart. I have Christ in my heart. But whatever's happened around me, I need to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, yes. Looking unto Jesus, the author. Amen. For me to live is... To die is gain. I am crucified with. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of. That's Christ. Who loved me and gave himself for me. When you have troubles, number one, believe God and verbalize your faith. And some of us, we might need to get quiet tonight and say, God, I trust you. I'm here because of you. I believe in you in my heart. You know I, I, I believe you. But verbalize it. <coughs> Say it. Man, I got a problem. I'm going I'm to trust you with that. Lord. I need to take that. Let your care and, and turn your care to prayer. 
Be careful for, but everything by prayer. Casting all your upon Him because He cares for you. Trust God and verbalize your faith. Number two, focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what can we trust God for? We can trust Him for His purposes and His power. Boy, listen to Brother Arbo's testimony. That wouldn't have blessing. Drive up there and get a fancy, fancy house for 500 bucks a month. Good night in the morning. I feel sorry for the rest of the world after hearing that right there. That's a wonderful thing. But you know what? That's how good God can be. You know, he did. He trusted God's purposes, that God brought him to that place, and then God's power to help him. You know that he doesn't have a corner on that. He doesn't have a monopoly on the power of God. The provision of God, the same Jesus that he has, you have. And we can trust his purposes and his power. Notice what he says, if you would please, at verse number uh, 14. Knowing this, that he which raised up Jesus from the dead, raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. I want you to notice another thing real quickly. Not only believe God and verbalize your faith. Tell him you believe him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Realize that it's his purposes and his power that helps us. But notice, don't make your problem about you. You know, the quickest way to waste hardship and trials is to make it about you. Make it about me, how it affects me, my thinking, my feelings, my desires. This is, this is interesting. In this chapter, you'll see numerous references to we and us and our. And really, Paul was taking the brunt of a lot of these problems. But he, he didn't make it all about him. It was about me and us and not me, but us and we and our. Don't make it about you. Uh, trust and realize, you know, whatever problem I've been through, other people have gone through that similar problem. In the wee hours of the morning on, April, on August the 16th, we had found out that our 17-year-old son was involved in a car accident. He was riding with a precious family in our church that loved him as much as we loved him. But uh, they, he was a passenger in a seatbelt, and the driver was driving, and the man in the back was sitting there. They were having a good time. They were singing songs. And the lady got mad at her boyfriend. He was parked on the side and slammed the phone down and pulled out in front of their car. And they saw her and tried to go around her. And as they were going around her, she decided to do a U-turn simultaneously. And they hit the back of the car, went up on the hillside, it flipped over. And when it flipped over, it landed on the tires, and the driver got out uninjured. The man in the back got out uninjured. But our son, still stuck in a seat belt with stretch marks on it, something broke his rib, and one rib went into his right lung, and the other rib went right into his heart muscle. In a few moments after CPR and an ambulance pulled up, it wasn't even attending to that accident, just drove just right behind him and put the, 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 the electric shock on him and did all the CPR and did all he could do to revive him and then... Unfortunately, he began to hemorrhage out of his mouth and his ears and his, and his nose, and they realized he had internal bleeding somewhere. And he went home to be with the Lord. And about three hours later, we got a call from the, t the coroner. He said, Mr. Wilkerson, are you the, you the father of Tyler? I said, yes, sir. He said, we're sorry to tell you. After m multiple other things, he just said he sustained fatal injuries. 
Mr. Wilkerson, I'm so sorry. Your son died. And boy, I thought I, I, thought I was going to die myself. Linda was standing there in the hallway of her home at 2670 Magnolia Avenue, and she looked up into my eyes as I got the phone. She said, he's gone, isn't he, honey? We cried like little babies. But I tell you, one of the things that came to my mind really quickly is that we're not the only one to ever go through this. Even God knows what it's like to lose a son. He can help us. Other people have gone through this with a lot less help than we're going to help. We, we got like 1,100 cards in the first two weeks of, after his death of people just saying, we love you, we're praying for you. With unbelievable support. One of the first things that came to my mind is, you know what, other people have gone through this and God helped them and he can help us. And we're going to be in, a, in, a, in a, a camaraderie of other people who have lost. No doubt in this room there are precious people who have received similar news. I think about my friend, Brother Ed Bordell. His son didn't die suddenly. He died with an arduous battle with leukemia. The steroids had made him, he's just a boy, maybe 150 pounds at his heaviest, and now he's over 225, 30 pounds because he's bloated from the steroids, and he begins to bleed out his nose and his eyes and his ears, and he's got so much pain, and his dad's trying to hold him to find him a comfortable place, and, and his arms are about ready to fall off. He can't hardly hold him anymore up, and then he just goes in, into, into eternity. Well, I don't know about you. I, I think when I think about that, I thought, oh, boy, that was hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of, of bills and pressures and difficulties and hospital visits and chemotherapy and all the things. And that's how he transitioned his son. But God helped him. God knows how to help us. Don't make it about you. Make it about his purposes. His power. Once you notice the next thing real quickly, and we see the reasons. Trials come in seasons and they come for reasons. Nobody has a breakneck, terrible life from start to finish I know about. Matter of fact, most of our days are good days. Most, most nights we don't go to bed hungry, like much of the world does. Most of the time, even in this Frigid temperatures that you experience here, and we have a few like that, not near as much as you, bless your heart. <laughs> but, you know, we usually can find a warm place, even when it's 41 below zero. We can find a place where we can get warm for, for the time we have to be. God takes care of us, doesn't he? It's just sad, but many people make a case about, and they spend their whole life angry and frustrated about a few things done against them at the expense of all the things God's done for them. Well, they have maybe something didn't go right here, there, and everywhere, but most of their life's been a good life. And yet we focus on the negative. You know what? Trials come in seasons, and they come for reasons. Here's a couple reasons that God gives us for trials. Look, if you would please, at verse number 15. For all things are for whose sake? Your sake. They're for the sake of others. They benefit other people when we go through difficult times. That the abundant grace, that's grace is God's help, might be through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. 
You know, when you have a problem, you know what it does? It humbles us. And when you have a problem that you can't solve, you have to say, oh, no, I need help. And you know what that causes you to do? Ask. And you know what that does? That causes God to give his grace to the humble. And when we ask God for help, we humble ourselves. But what makes us pray is helplessness and, and faith. <laughs> now, some of us, we don't pray because we, we, we got this. I do this all the time. We don't pray about stuff because we think we're, we got it. We do this. I mean, I can do this with my eyes closed. But the truth matters, I need God all the time. But helplessness, I'll tell you when you pray, when your loved one's in the hospital in the ER tonight and they can't do a bloom and think about it and they don't know what the problem is, you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to pray. Because now it crossed the threshold of your abilities. You got helpless real quick. I get helpless. And we'll, we'll talk to God. And then we talk to him and we get humble. And then what does God do? He gives us his help. That's what grace is. It's God's supernatural help. Did you save yourself? No, for by grace. We're saved by grace. God's help. And he helps us. And then when he helps us, we're thankful. And we thank him. We give the thanks to him. Well, when you get help and you're a mess and someone helps you, oh, you're thankful. And then it brings glory to God. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're still breathing today is to bring good to others and give glory to God. Helping others and honoring God. If, if you're not doing that and I'm not doing that in my life, I'm really wasting the breath God gave me. I'm supposed to give others a good opinion of the God that loves us and does so much for us. See, we find there's a reason for trials. Trials have a reason. They humble us, and we ask God for help. He gives us his help, and then we become very grateful people, and then we bring glory to him. Then I want you to notice real quickly the next thought real quickly. And, and of course, we're just talking about how to handle problems, laboring together with God through problems. Trust God and verbalize your faith in him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such contradiction of sinners. Boy, if you say, Pastor, I'm having it so bad. Did you ever have it bad as Jesus had it? No, no, I don't think we can compare with that, right? I think we can make it. When you consider what Jesus, he did nothing but good and got nothing but bad. We do nothing but bad, get a few things bad, and we get mad. <laughs> Something's wrong with us. Got stinking thinking. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his purposes and his power. Focus on the purposes and the reasons so that we can get his grace and thanksgiving and glory to God. Look at the next verse, if you would, please. And I think we can see it real quickly in verse number 16. For this cause, for which cause we do what? We don't quit. For our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. You know, when you have problems, one thing you don't want to do is quit. The old, the old poet said, when things go wrong, as they sometimes will. When the road you're trudging seems all uphill. When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile, but you have to sigh. Huh. When care presses you down a bit. Sir, ma'am, rest if you must, but, but don't quit. Success may be failure when it seems like it's so far. 
So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong. You mustn't quit. He said, for this cause, we faint not. We don't quit. Because problems and trouble can put pressure on the internal, on the external, the outward man. But the inward man is renewed day by day. God's doing an inner work of grace. One thing all of us need is inner man strength. We need inner man strength to stay when we want to leave. We need man strength to study when we want to watch a, to- a football game. We need inner man strength to forgive when we want to hold a grudge. To give when we want to keep. Inner man strength to soul win. Inner man strength to disciple converts. You know, I think about listening to Brother Arbo's story, and I'm so glad Pastor Rice has having him do that. But you can hear the wonderful story about the the the. Um, the, the uh, nursing home. But how many years did he say he did that nursing home ministry? 22 years. When did they start giving him $500 a month? Year number 14. With nothing on his own gas, his own dime, his own time. 14 years times 52 weeks. Hundreds of times going to that nursing home. 48 funerals in one year. Doing what he had to do. I think that's called inner man strength, don't you think? Let's keep going. Well, that's sometimes all we can do is just put one step in front of the other. And keep going on. Though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. And then he goes on to say that really all of our trials are temporary trials. The doctor said, I got cancer. If you're saved, it's temporary. Not to belittle that, but the truth of the matter is, uh, it's temporary. Every problem you have as a child of God is a temporary problem. Because one day God will wipe away all tears from her eyes. There will be no more night, no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying. Everything. He goes on to verse 17. Look at it with me. We'll conclude. For our light affliction was but for a what? Yeah. Just a short time. It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. And dear friend, how we handle our problems has eternal impact and dividends. Impact on others and dividends for you. The Bible says, blessed is a man that endureth temptation or trials. Because when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord giveth to everyone who loves him. Listen, God never wastes problems. He never wastes trials. He never wastes an attack. Look, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Satan who thought about Job. That was, that was done by God. He said, you know, I think, I think Job can handle it. I'll help him. Have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but when you have a problem, one thing you might want to think sometimes, you know, God entrusted me with this problem. He thinks I can do it. He, he's going to do it. And all this Job sin not, sin not nor charge God how? Like an idiot. No, he, did, he didn't do that. He, didn't, he, 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 he exercised wisdom. Faith in God. 
and we're still talking about Job. And if you don't know your Bible, Job. <laughs> we're still talking about him for all that God used him to do. And when you have a bad day, you can say, well, not as bad as Job. He trusted the Lord. God used him. And he has eternal impact on our own life today, many hundreds of years later. Hey, has trouble been your constant companion? Believe God. And tell him, I trust you, Lord. I don't understand. I got more questions than answers, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take my care and make it prayer. I'm going to cast all my care upon you. Know you'll help me. I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to trust your providence and your presence and, and your purposes and your power. I'm going to ask you for help. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep on doing what God wants me to do because my problems are temporary and they have an eternal impact. Let's pray together. Could you stand with me? If God has spoken to your heart, uh, what, what an encouraging time. And so enjoyed the, the good music uh, that we got to enjoy for our conference. I know many of you weren't able to be a part of it, but uh, many folks were involved. I appreciate Brother Mark helping with the choir and also singing. Brother Mark's going to sing for us this morning uh, before the preaching. And uh, as God prepares her heart to receive the word of God. Brother Mark, come ahead. Time measured out my days Life carried me along In my soul I yearned to follow God But knew I'd never be so strong I look hard at this world To learn how heaven could be gained Just to end where I began Where human effort is all in vain were it not for grace I can tell you where I'd be Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere With my salvation up to me I know how that would go the battles I would face Forever running but losing the race Were it not for grace So here is all my praise Expressed with all my heart Offered to a friend who took my place And ran the course I could not even start
And when he saw in full Just how much his love would cost He still went the final mile Between me and heaven So I would not be lost Were it not for grace I can tell you where I'd be Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere With my salvation up to me I know how that would go The battles I would face Forever running but losing the race Were it not for grace Grace, grace God's grace Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace God's grace Grace that is greater than all Our sin were it not for grace I can tell you where I'd be Wandering down some pointless road to nowhere With my salvation up to me I know how that would go The battles I will face Forever running but losing the race were it not for grace Forever running But losing the race Were it not for grace Were it not for grace Amen. Thank you, Brother Mark. Praise God for grace. Amen. I want to share a prayer request with you quickly before we open our Bibles. Uh, be praying, Brother Dave. I got a message from him. I didn't hear it late last night, but family was traveling by Bonneville, and uh, they had a family. Their car was T-boned, and uh, how old's the one in the hospital? Just young. Just a seven or eight-year-old. Uh, your grandniece or is it nephew? Grandniece. I was in surgery last night. I don't have an update. Uh, everyone else okay? But uh, please be praying for her. Let's have just a moment of prayer, prayer even right now. Lord, thank you that you are the great physician. Thank you that you're all-powerful. Lord, I pray that you would even now, Lord, touch uh, her body. Lord, be with her family. Uh, Lord, I pray you give healing. Lord, be with the doctors and surgeons as they're working with her. Lord, we pray for your mercy and your grace there. We thank you for your grace. Lord, just touch her. Bless us now. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah with me? Nehemiah chapter 3. 
Nehemiah chapter 3, I want to talk to you this morning about it's not a, it's not a one-man show. It's not a one-man show. Nehemiah, of course, a man who was living in the lap of luxury. Nehemiah, who was in Shushan the palace, and he had one of the most coveted jobs, the most trusted jobs in all the kingdom. He was the cupbearer for the king. And he heard about a need. He heard about his people. He heard about the walls that were uh, torn down and the gates that were burned with fire. He heard about the nation of Israel, how they were defenseless and uh, how they did not have a leader and they did not have protection and God broke his heart and God burdened him. And the Bible says that he prayed and he fasted for many days and he went to the king and asked the king if he could go and uh, the king let him go and gave him letters to, uh, to get all the wood he needed and provision he needed and protection he needed. And he went and he saw the need and he prayed. The Bible says at night he went and nobody knew that he went. Just him and the beast that he rode upon went around the city and he saw the gates burn with fire. He saw the walls torn down. He saw the rubble. He saw the lack of protection. And God burdened his heart to build the walls of Jerusalem. And yet it was not Nehemiah that built the walls of Jerusalem. I want you to look with me here in Nehemiah chapter 3, and verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it. The sheep gate, by the way, is where the sheep for the offerings would come through. That's why the priests worked there. And under the tower of Meha, they sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them builded Zakur, the son of Emery. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanai build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Coles. And next unto them repaired Meshulman, the son of Berachian, the son of Meshabiel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of uh, Baana. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodei. And they laid the beams thereof, and set the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And we could continue reading this morning, and we would find that many... Many people were involved in the building of the wall around Jerusalem. We would find that not only were many people involved, right square, smack dab in the middle of the list, you'd find a name, the name Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was part of the work. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah fasted. Nehemiah petitioned the king. Nehemiah got the letters from the king. Nehemiah got the protection of the king. Nehemiah uh, had the burden, but it was not a one-man show. Nehemiah was part of the building. Nehemiah certainly was involved. But I praise the Lord for these men, and we could continue reading about those that were involved in the great work that God did. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you did in Jerusalem. We thank you for those that got to be involved in the great wall being built. We thank you for those that struggled 
against the problems that came. And Lord, I thank you for Nehemiah, but Lord, I'm glad it wasn't just Nehemiah. Nehemiah couldn't have built the wall. Lord, he needed those people that you consecrated and set apart to that service around about him. And Lord, as we think this morning about the work of God, as we as a church family think for just a little bit about how we can labor together, Lord, as we encourage preachers and, and churches across our country this week, Lord, I pray you would encourage us this morning. Lord, help us to realize the importance of laboring together. Lord, I pray your will will be done. I pray you'd empower me and embolden me this morning to preach your word. Lord, I pray if there be one here that knows you not as Savior, Lord, today may they know that you love them. May they know the greatest news in all the world, that God loved them, that Jesus came, that he died on the cross, he was buried and rose again to pay their debt, that they would call upon you. God, would you work in us and through us as we labor together with you and with one another for the cause of Christ. In your precious name we pray. I want us this morning to see how God, how God's work is to be done. God gives us a pattern, I believe, here in the book of Nehemiah. I love the book of Nehemiah. I love the heart of Nehemiah. Uh, but we see very plainly that it was not a one-man show. God wants us, all of us, to be light and salt. God wants us to reach the world. Uh, with the gospel. God wants us to grow. God wants us to mature. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot that God wants us to do. But God wants us to work as a team to achieve his purpose. Christian ministry has always been God's plan for it to be team ministry. God doesn't want a one man to carry out the work of God. You don't see it throughout scripture. You always see that God gathers a group of people like he did around Nehemiah uh, as he built the wall. We're to be following God's plan. Very quickly this morning, just by way of introduction, as we look at God, we see God labors together. Say, Pastor, how is that? We see God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We see in the book of Genesis, he said, let us make man in our image. God reminds us of the Trinity even in the very beginning of the Bible. God reminds us when he began to do the work of creation and the work of creating his most prized possession, man. He said, let us, let us labor together. Jesus, Jesus labored together. Jesus is the son of God. He's more than a prophet, uh, more than a preacher, more than a rabbi. More than a good man, more than uh, not a political leader, he is God in the flesh. As the angel told uh, Mary, his mother, uh, he would be, as he told Joseph, hey, uh, that child that Mary is with is of the Holy Ghost. Don't put her away. It is God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. God has come. Jesus came. How many of you believe that God is all-powerful? I believe that. I believe God doesn't have to have the help of man. God can do anything. And yet, Christian, Jesus gave us an example in the Gospels. If you look in the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of John, the record of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, you know what you find? You find that Jesus used people and labored together with lots of people. He used tax collectors 
I wouldn't have wanted to use a tax collector. But Jesus did. He used physicians. He used fishermen. He used women and children. By the way, he used a Mary Magdalene. Some of you would have wanted to cast her out. But Jesus found her and Jesus shared the love of God with her and Mary. That woman who was used up by the world. That woman who was broken and possessed by devils and in the depths of sin where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And Mary Magdalene got to be the first one to see the Lord Jesus Christ when he rose from the tomb. But he worked with her. He used the wealthy. He used the poor. He used masters. He used slaves. He used passive people. He used dynamic people. As you look at those people that Jesus used in ministry while he walked this earth before he would go to the cross and rise again, you'll find out that Jesus labored together with many people from many walks of life. Why? He didn't have to do that. He, he didn't have to have a, a, a Peter. He didn't have to have a Mary Magdalene. He didn't have to have a John and James. He didn't have to have a Judas. He didn't have to have Solomon. Uh, uh, he didn't have to have all those dear people that worked around him. He didn't have to have a Nicodemus. Didn't have to be there. Why did he? Because he wanted us to see. He wanted us to pattern of laboring together. Paul, the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine if we could have the Apostle Paul come and preach to us? Man, that'd be okay, wouldn't it? If I get to heaven, I'm going to say to Jesus, Hey, you think it'd be okay if Paul got up and preached a little bit? I want to hear him preach. Probably sound a little bit like Pastor Wilkerson, but I, when we get him preach a little bit, man, if anybody, if we thought, man, that guy, man, he could charge hell with a squirt gun and he could reach the world by himself, it's Paul. That'd be our thinking. And yet Paul didn't do it by himself. Paul was a team player. Paul had Barnabas. Paul had John Mark. Paul had others. For a while, he had Demas. He had others that labored with him. Everywhere Paul went, he had folks laboring with him. Because it was, it was laboring together. It was teamwork. I want to give you just a little bit of background on the text that we read a moment ago and share just a couple of thoughts, just four simple thoughts with you this morning. God brought Israel to the promised land. If you're following along in our Bible reading schedule, let me, let me stop and pause for an advertisement. Uh, let me encourage you uh, to use the tool that we have there. If you, if you need a Bible reading calendar, the back on the back wall when you walk out, we've got the, the bookmarks with the calendar on there. Uh, but if you're following that, that tool, you may have another tool you're using to read the Bible. But if you're following that tool, you've, you read about God uh, bringing Israel to the promised land. But later, Israel continued to sin against the Lord. Later, in the Bible, the Lord would warn them through the prophets. God would say, hey, stop! <laughs> they wouldn't stop. They wouldn't listen. They ignored the warning of God. And God brought judgment upon them. God dealt with His children. God dealt with them. They went into captivity into Babylon. Brother Ahmad's great-great-great-grandfather brought him into captivity. And uh, brought him into captivity in Babylon. In Babylon, they cried out to God. And after 70 years of crying out to God, God would deliver them in Babylon. The Babylonians had defeated 
the Persians, and Cyrus, their leader. And the first batch of Israelites that would come back to Jerusalem were led by Ezra the priest, who rebuilt the temple. And praise God for the rebuilding of the temple. Praise God for the prophet Ezra. Praise God for the work of Ezra. But sometime later, the walls of the city still were laying down. There was no protection. There was no peace in the city. And it wasn't safe. And then we come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, while the cupbearer for the king heard the news in Shushan that his people were in trouble. Heard that there was a great work to do. He heard the walls needed to be rebuilt. And God, as I mentioned, laid on his heart to go. God was searching for a man to do the job, but it was not a one-man show. God was searching for a man that he could use, but he was not just searching for one man. He was searching for a man that would partner with and labor together with those that God had ready to do the work of God. I believe that God is still looking. God is still looking for those to be involved in the work of God. God's still looking for those to, uh, to labor together. I believe this morning God is looking, for, looking out at a group of people and, and cheering us on from heaven and saying, Hey, I want you to labor together. I want you to partner together. I want you to do the great work that I have for you. I believe God wants us to pray, Lord, please use me. God, I may not have much. I may not have much ability, but God, what I have is yours. God, would you take what I have, like that little lad with the lunch, Jesus, I don't have much. I've got some fish and I've got some bread and it's sure not enough, but God, if you want it, you can have it. Can I tell you, God can take you and your abilities, or as we think, our lack of abilities, and God can make it abound to that which we cannot understand. God wants us to be involved. So Nehemiah would leave Shushan. The king's cupbearer. Living in that place, Shushan the palace, would leave the palace and he would go to Jerusalem. He would go to that place where there was no protection and the walls were torn down. He inspected the walls, as I said before, he prayed. Nobody had been doing anything about it. People were living there. They walked by every day and saw the gates burn with fire. They saw the charred mess, the leftover from the gates. They saw the walls broken down, and every day they just passed by. I don't know how long it was. I, I don't know the timeline of how long people just passed by and didn't do the work. But I know that it happened. The Bible says that Nehemiah got up before the people, and he shared the need. And he said, let us strengthen our hands for this good work. Can I tell you what happened? From the time that he got up and he said, hey, people of Israel, we, we've got to strengthen our hand for the work that God has. Look around us. The, the walls are torn down. The gates are burned with fire. Uh, let us rise up and build. He didn't say, hey, everybody, you set down the bleachers. Pull up a chair. Man, get ready to take some videos, some action shots. Uh, I'm going to build the wall of Jerusalem. No. By the way, my dad had a great idea. I talked to him last night. He said, where are you going to set people next year for your conference? He said, I think you should build bleachers. And I said, man, we could have a sports theme. 
we could have six layers of bleachers. You wait and see. We'll see what we're going to do. But he didn't say, hey, sit in the bleachers while I build the wall. He said, let us strengthen our hands for this good work. And we find out that exactly 52 days later, just 52 days, 52 days later, the wall was finished. I don't care how many sleepless nights Nehemiah went through, he couldn't have built the wall in 52 days. I don't care how strong Nehemiah was. I, I don't care how good of a worker, I don't care how skilled he was. Nehemiah could not build the wall in 52 days. But God could with those that labored together with Nehemiah. And 52 days later, we read about those that they repaired this gate and that gate. Throughout the chapter here of chapter 4, the theme truly is laboring together. And Christian, how wonderful it is that you and I, in our day in 2024, we get to labor together for God. We get to serve Him together. People stood shoulder to shoulder as they did the work that God had. Sure, it was Nehemiah who came and prayed. It was Nehemiah who, who spurred them on and said, hey, let's build the wall. But it wasn't a one-man show. I'll share an illustration with them. I'm just four points. A farmer one day noticed a highway department vehicle, a transportation vehicle, pulling over on the shoulder of the road. A man got out of that vehicle and dug a hole. A guy with a orange vest and hard hat, work clothes. He got out with a shovel and dug a hole. Then he got back in the truck. After he got back in the truck, out of the other side of the truck, out of the other side of the, the highway vehicle, Department of Highway Vehicle, another laborer, another worker got out. He was wearing a hard hat and an orange vest and work clothes. And he got out of the truck and he had a shovel. And he went over to the hole the man had just dug and, and he filled the hole back in on the side of the road. Farmer watched it happen. After he got back in, they drove about 50 yards, 50 meters. Truck pulled over again. Four-way flashers went on. First guy gets out of the truck. He gets out, digs a hole in the side of the road. He gets back in the truck. The other guy gets out. He fills the hole back in. The farmer's like, what in the world's going on? They went about 50 meters farther. Got back in the vehicle, got out. First guy gets out, gets a shovel. He digs a hole. He gets back in the vehicle. The other worker gets out. He fills it in. The farmer couldn't take it any longer. He had to find out what in the world they were doing. So he, he went up to the road there just outside his farm where he saw him. And when they stopped the vehicle the next time and the guy got out with his shovel to do the work to dig the hole, he said, what are you guys doing? He said, I've been watching you guys. He said, you get out, you dig a hole, and you get, you get done digging, you get back in the car, the truck, and then another guy gets out, and he fills the hole back in. He said, I don't understand. What in the world are you doing? And the guy said, well, sir, it's very simple. He said, it's very simple. He said, we're working on a highway tree planting project. And the farmer said, what do you mean tree planting project? He said, yeah. He said, he said we're, we're a crew of men, and we're planting trees along the highway. He said, however, the guy who plants the tree is homesick today. <laughs> I'm afraid a lot of the work of God doesn't get done the way it should get done. 
because there's some missing pieces of the puzzle. The hole gets dug, and the hole gets filled up. But that person whose job it was to do the other part's missing. And I want us to be reminded this morning that the work of God is laboring together. I want to share just four thoughts with you this morning. Number one, when you do God's work, you will face opposition. When you do God's work, you will face opposition. The first car that I owned that was mine was a 61 Ford wagon. It weighed, I think, about 4,700 pounds. It had a Ford FE 390 engine in it, Thunderbird engine. It was a big car. It weighed a little bit less because some of the floor and some of the body was rotted away, so that took a little of the metal out of it. But it was a heavy car, and the gas gauge didn't work because of rust. So I tried to stop every 100 miles, Brother Maude, to get gas. So I, I used the odometer work and said, Pastor, why every 100 miles? Because it had a 390 Thunderbird with a double pumper holly on top. It used a lot of gas. And if the gas gauge worked, it would have gone just as quick as the speedometer. But sometimes I forgot to get gas. How many of you are surprised by that? Nobody. And on more than one occasion, I'd be going down the road. And I would realize, oh, no, 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 no. I'm out of gas. On several occasions, God was gracious to this dummy. And he would let me run out of gas and, and be able to coast into a gas station. At least four times, I remember, putting it in neutral. It was a three-speed on the column. I remember pressing the clutch, pulling it in neutral, uh, and just coasting under the power of that big vehicle into a gas station and just stopping just right by a gas pump. But I remember one morning... The Lord had given me grace many times. And one morning, the Lord decided I needed to learn a lesson. And he let my car run out of gas, and I coasted as far as I could go. And I'm holding the steering wheel. Oh, God, please let us keep going. Let's keep going. But I knew I was a long way from a gas station. And eventually, it stopped. So I rolled the window down. I got out of the car. I put the car in neutral. I went behind the car for a little bit just to get it moving. Once I got, I was by myself. Once I got it moving, I went by the window, so I had the steering wheel. And, of course, the door was so solid, you could push anywhere on that car and not break anything. I could push the glass, and the glass would have probably held. And I had to push that car all the way to a gas station. I pushed that car for a quarter of a mile. I don't ever want to do that again. I thought I was going to die. And I finally got it going fast enough that I jumped in it and I coasted up and, and steered it into a gas station. But I was praising God it wasn't uphill. I wouldn't have made it. I barely made it on level ground. Can I tell you that serving Christ is rarely ever level ground? It's almost always uphill. And we're always going to face opposition. The Bible says in Nehemiah 2.19, But when Samballat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Hey, listen this morning. When we say, let us rise up and build, the devil will raise up a group of people that will say, Hey, let's rise up and oppose. 
Let's rise up and oppose. The devil wants to fight and to stop the work of God. When you do God's work, when you're involved, laboring together, shoulder to shoulder, building and doing the work of God, understand there will be opposition. There will be struggle. Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, For a great door and effectual is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul said, I got a great door to go through, but once I get through that door, man, it's a gauntlet of those that would try to stop me and those that would try to be in the way. Understand, Christian, when God opens a door of ministry, when God opens a door of work, there is always those that will try to oppose. Always. When I was a young guy, but when I had two knees that worked and I had a body that worked and a shoulder that was connected and uh, I wasn't fat and out of shape, I used to like playing football. Now, when I played football, I liked playing on the line, and uh, either offense or defensive line. And, and if I played uh, offensive line and I had the defense across from me, whenever that ball was snapped and our center would snap the ball, my job was to stop that defense that was trying to get to my quarterback. My job was to make sure they did not get to the uh, the one that was going to receive the handoff, make sure that they weren't going to rush my quarterback so the quarterback could get back in the pocket and make that pass or make the handoff or do the running play. I was going to stop them. The devil looks as we take the football, the work of God. And as we take it and we say, man, we're going to go, we're going to serve the Lord, we're going to build for the Lord, mark it down, the devil's team is going to come and try to stop us. We need to be reminded as we labor together when we do God's work, we will face opposition. We will face opposition. There's great opportunity, but also great, great opposition. God, God wants us to go forward. We may face criticism, face opposition. may have people that will be angry, but we need to go forward for God. No matter the difficulty, we need to pursue doing the doing of God's work. Number two, I said when you do God's work, you'll face opposition. Number two, there will be people on the team who do not work. There will be people on the team who do not work. As we labor together, we need to use the picture God gives us here in Scripture don't stop working or stop serving for the Lord because nobody else, some, somebody else is not serving. Invariably, as we labor together, when we're all working together and laboring together, some will fold their hands and say, let me see how they do without me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting involved. I'm not going to be a part of this. I, I didn't plan this, so I'm not doing it. So, Pastor, how do you know that's the case? I know it from, from practicality, but I know it from Scripture. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah uh, chapter 3 and verse 5, the Bible says, And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but notice the phrase here, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. The nobles or the rulers of Tekoa, hometown of Amos the prophet about 12 miles south of Jerusalem 
By the way, the people of Tekoa are not mentioned in Ezra's prophecy. They, they're not mentioned in that list of those that returned from exile in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. It's, it's possible, many theologians believe, that those people never went into exile. That they stayed in the area, they were far enough away from Jerusalem, they didn't get brought into exile. Probably, they, if they didn't go into exile, they had been influenced by Geshem the Arabian. Look in chapter 2 and verse 19. It says, And when Samballat and the Hornite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn. Geshem the Arabian, same area. Maybe they had been influenced by the enemies of God, the enemies of the work of God. But there were people on the team. There were people that should have been laboring that did no labor. Christian, don't let that stop you. Don't let the discouragement of others keep you from being the blessing God wants you to be. Don't let those that would play for the other team stop you from laboring together with God. There are those who did not labor. Ones who wanted to discourage rather than to build. There will be those on the team who will not cooperate. Someone said there are two types of people in the world, one who shares in the victory but not the battle. And then there are some who share in the battle and sweat it out. There are different kinds of people here in our, our local church here, in every local church. Uh, there are participators and there are spectators. Now, there ought not be, but there are. There are encouragers and there are discouragers. I wonder which one you are. I wonder which one I am. Participators come to engage, to listen, to lift up, to give. They come to serve, willing to use their spiritual gifts. Spectators show up expecting everybody to wait on them. They come late and leave early, always expecting somebody to give to them. Encouragers or team players laboring together. They have a common goal, to be motivated for the work of God. Discouragers are the one who sometimes are lifted up and we focus on them. If they don't get the prominence, they discourage. They gossip against those who don't want to follow them and lift them up. And here's the question we ask, well, am I one of those people? Can I, can I help you with this? Uh, if you've been irritated the last couple minutes as I've been talking, you're probably one of those. That's the reality. You know, it's been said if you shoot in a bunch, if you throw a rock in, a bunch, in amongst a bunch of dogs and one of the dogs yelps, that's the one you probably hit. And uh, sometimes the Holy Spirit hits us with His Word, and, and we need to get better and not bitter. We need to let God change us and help us. Matthew 18 Verse 6 through 7 says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and then he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Friends, can I ask you this morning, are you a wall builder or a wall breaker? Are you a laborer or a spectator? 
are you a person of faith or are you lacking of faith you see you and i are either laboring together or we're hindering the labor of god we're either pushing forward for god's purpose or we're hindering those who are going forward for god's purpose number three this morning i said number two there'll be people on the team who do not work number three we need to find our place in the work that God is doing. Remember, it's not a one-man show. It wasn't the work Nehemiah was doing. It was what God was doing. How is it possible that 52 days later, the wall could be built and joined together and the gates were set and they'd have safety? By the way, they didn't have smooth sailing. They had, the Bible says, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because opposition came, discouragement came, and yet 52 days later, the wall was finished. How? Because it was God's work. It was God's work. We need to find our place in God's work and do it. Over the past 18 and a half years, I've had folks come to me and say, Pastor, I, in the last year, I, this happened. Pastor, we, we feel like that you know, we should find another church, and this isn't the place for us. I'd love to have everybody that ever comes to Cornerstone stay here. And uh, there's never been a time when I've said, boy, I'm sure glad you're leaving. <laughs> Only because Ahmad has never told me he's leaving. <laughs> but I, did I say that out loud with my outside voice? There's never been a time when I've said, yes. I've always, I've always said this. I've always made the statement that when that's happened, I say, you know what, I, I sure hate to see you go, but I want you and I want your family to be where you can serve the Lord. I, I, I'm for you. I'm on your side. I love your family. I I want you to be in a place where God can use you. And I don't just say those words because I think I'm supposed to say those words. I mean those words. And then I, after the meeting, I get alone and I cry and I weep. And I pray for that family. I say, God, would you use them? Would you help them wherever you want them to be? I don't know the will of God for other people. I, I, I don't hold the corner on God's will. Can I tell you that I, I truly believe that every one of us ought to be in the place where God wants us. And if you're not there, you need to get there. By the way, if this isn't where it is, you find it. You find that place, you get in your place, and you, and you fill that place for God. Don't, don't, don't sit in the bleachers. It's easy, by the way, in a growing church. It's, I mean, we got a lot of people here. We're full, and, and man, it's exciting to see what God is doing. It's easy in a church like this church to be a spectator man there's so many people serving the lord god wants all of us serving the lord god wants all of us busy don't don't be a spectator that's not your place god doesn't have god doesn't need spectators we already have spectators in heaven the bible says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses i wish sometimes that god could open our eyes like he did for the prophet uh, the servant of the prophet so we could see the great grandstands in heaven watching down witnessing the work of god but that's not our job. Our job is to fill the place of what God wants us to do. We see that in Nehemiah 3. We see this person repaired this place and this person. And I love the fact that in the middle of that list we find Nehemiah. He was in his place. But it wasn't just Nehemiah's wall that was built. Every wall. Every gate. I love the fact that the priests, the Levites, 
They built the sheep gate. Why, was, why did they build that gate? That was their gate. That's where they had to bring the sheep in for the sacrifices. That was their responsibility. Christian, God has a responsibility for you. Cornerstone Baptist Church family, God has a responsibility for you. We need to find it. We need to fill it. We need to be in that place and labor together to do the will of God. The phrase next to, and we won't read all of it for sake of time, but in that passage, we see the phrase next to. In other words, and next to them, build with him, and next to them. 28 times we see that phrase. We see that next to all the way around if they get back around again. Because they were laboring in their place. They were in their spot. They were doing the work God had for them. How many of you like honey? I like honey. Honey is my favorite insect vomit, by the way. I, maybe there's some others that are good. I don't know. But Jim, have you tried any more insect vomit? Maybe cockroach vomit's good. I don't know. I never tried it. Maybe ant vomit's good. I haven't tried that one either. But uh, I know that bee vomit, I mean, honey is good. And uh, I love honey. And uh, praise God. Uh, the Bible says the honey's good for you. By the way, honey is something that never, never, never spoils. It's pretty miraculous, some things you can do with honey. And God does, speaks about honey and uses illustration in Scripture. But the Bible says go to the ant, thou sluggard. We can look at insects. We can learn things. We can learn some things from the honeybee. You can learn about laboring together from them. Probably around 4,000 bees in a hive, a honeybee hive. That's a lot. On a warm day, only about half of the bees will leave the hive. Only about half of them will go out and they'll go get the nectar to bring back to make the honey. The other half of the bees in the hive, you ever been, how many have ever been around a beehive? You hear that? That sounded pretty good, didn't it? <laughs> now maybe I can get a job and making noises. And finally found something I can do. Praise God. But you know what's going on, that noise? The rest of the bees in there? They're not flapping their hands. They're flapping their I don't have any wings. If I had wings, I'd flap them. But they're in there flapping their wings in that hive. When they do that, when they flap their wings and beat their weaves, you hear that It's cooling the inside of the hive. Scientists tell us that they've studied that the inside of a beehive is about 10 degrees cooler than the outside of the beehive. You see, the ones that aren't out getting, gathering the honey, the, the, the pollen and all of that to bring back, the nectar to bring back for the honey, the others inside are still doing a work. They all have a job to do. All of them are fulfilling their job. They all have roles and duties that they fulfill. Not all of them leave the nest. By the way, the queen stays in there all the time. She's down there laying eggs. The worker bees, they all have a job. And Christian, we all have a job. We all have a place God wants us to be. By the way, that wall, just so you know, was about three kilometers long. About two miles long. That, that, that's a long wall. That's a long wall. That would be ballpark about 16 blocks. About that, Brother Ahmad, is that right? I think I'm pretty close to that. 16, 20 blocks long, the wall they built. That's a bunch. The wall was about... 
40 feet high, just under 40 feet high. We're not talking about something, a little fence around the property. We're talking about a, a three-kilometer stretch of, or longer of, of, of wall, about 40 feet high. And by the way, not only was it, a four, it wasn't a 40 feet high uh, wall like this, it was about eight feet thick. That's a big wall. And yet in 52 days it was built, the wall around Jerusalem. On that wall, 34 watchtowers. Seven main gates for traffic coming in and out. We're not, we're not talking about little holes. The main gates for traffic, seven of them. And yet 52 days later, why? Because everybody filled their place. Lastly, just a quick thought, and we'll close here right away. Number four, we think of the types of people who worked on the wall. This chapter, Nehemiah mentions different kinds of people. People from everywhere in Nehemiah's day laboring together. Involved in the building of the wall from everywhere. The people mentioned in the list not only lived inside the city walls, there were people that lived outside the city. People that lived next to the city. People that lived uh, in other areas. There were people from different backgrounds. Nehemiah's team had people from uh, various places. People were from other trades. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Uh, some of these people were priests. Some were goldsmiths. Some were perfumers. Some were merchants. There were workers from different classes. Nehemiah 3.9 says, And unto them uh, next repaired uh, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, the ruler of half part of Jerusalem. If you will, a governor was working. He was laboring. Nehemiah 3.12, And next to him repaired Shalom, the son of Haloish, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. In other words, both the rulers of Jerusalem rolled up their sleeves and they got busy in the work of God. There were people of tradesmen, there were rulers, there were men, there were women, there were young, there were old. Nehemiah's team had a vast group of people, but they were united. They were not united because of where they came from. They were not united because of what work they did. They were not united because of the class they came from. They were united in the work. United in the work. Christian, I'm sure glad we can be united in the work of God. How wonderful. How wonderful. It's not a one-man show. God wants us working together. By the way, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, can I tell you that Jesus Christ came and died for you, for you, to pay your sin. He was buried and rose again, proving he's God, proving he's able to save you. And he wants to save you from hell, give you a home in heaven, and he wants to put you on the team. He wants you involved in the work of God. How wonderful is that? Laboring together, amen, laboring together as we come together to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the great work that you have for us to do. I thank you that we have